This is an ABC podcast. This is David Rutledge. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone here on RN. And it's great to have your company today because I'm delighted to announce that this is the first episode in a five-part series that's going to be running through November and early December on philosophy in the wake of empire. If you ask people what's the goal of philosophy, many or perhaps most of them will say that the goal of philosophy is to get to the truth of things and that the truth of things is what you find once you've stripped away all the layers of stuff that gets in the way of truth. Stuff like history and politics, stuff that shifts and changes over time and obscures our vision of those eternal verities. Well, over the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at the ways in which history and politics are actually deeply sedimented into the practice of philosophy, in particular, the history and politics of colonialism. Because another thing that people will say, if you ask them to name some key philosophers, will be to mention philosophers in the Anglo-American or European tradition. Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Hume, Nietzsche, Wittgenstein, philosophy's greatest hits are mostly male, overwhelmingly white and definitively Western. Relegated to the margins of the philosophical canon are traditions from India, Africa, Asia, Indigenous Australia and other parts of the world that have not coincidentally found themselves under Western colonial rule at some point in their history. So in this series, we're going to be teasing out some of the issues around colonisation, imperial history and the production of knowledge. Stay with me, it's going to be fun. It's amazing how hard it is to study anything other than Anglo-European philosophy in the English-speaking world or in Europe. So, for example, in the United States, uh, less than 10% of doctoral programs in philosophy have anyone on staff who teaches Chinese philosophy. Less than 5% have anyone who teaches Indian philosophy, less than 5% have anyone who teaches African philosophy, and only two doctoral programs in philosophy in the United States. Not 2%, but two have anyone who teaches the philosophy of the indigenous people of the Americas. So it's pretty whitewashed. That's Brian Van Norden. He's a professor of philosophy at Yale NUS College in Singapore. And he sees this relative absence of non-Western traditions of thought in Western universities as owing to something more pernicious than just academic oversight. It definitely is due to racism, and it also is something that is continuing to be a structural racist problem. When Europeans first encountered philosophy in China and India, they immediately recognized it as philosophical and were fascinated by it. So Leibniz, who is a standard figure on any Western philosophy curriculum, was deeply impressed by Chinese philosophy. Uh, Arthur Schopenhauer was deeply impressed with Indian philosophy, to give just two examples. However, beginning with the philosophy of Kant, people started to assume that people in in India and people in China were racially incapable of doing philosophy. So after Kant, Indian and Chinese philosophy were written out of the philosophy textbooks. Kant really is central to this discussion, isn't he? What is it about Kant's work that positions him as such a key figure in the story of Western philosophical racism? Well, Kant, as an epistemologist and as a, a philosopher of the of metaethics, is 
utterly brilliant. And so I'm not taking that away from him. However, he accepted and propagated notions of white racial superiority. So he said explicitly in his lectures that, quote, the race of the whites contains all virtues in itself. And then he hierarchically ranked the other races beneath the whites. He said that Indians, quote, look like philosophers, but they're actually not capable of philosophical thought. And he said the same thing about Chinese people. He said that uh, African people were only fit to be servants. And he said that indigenous peoples of the Americas were even lower than that and were not even capable of uh, reproducing, which is completely illogical, but he said that they were infertile uh, and seldom spoke. So he didn't actually give arguments for these claims. He just asserted them. But they were accepted by generations of students. uh, And also Kant's own disciples rewrote the philosophy textbooks, and they wrote India and Africa out of the history of philosophy, and they presented all of Western philosophy as a linear progression from the ancient Greeks leading up to Kant. And as a result, people take it for granted without argument that there is no philosophy outside of the tradition that goes back to Greece. What interests me there is that Kant's claims of white supremacy are very well known, but they're usually presented as a sort of embarrassing footnote to his brilliant and valuable insights, right, in in much the same way as some of Nietzsche's sillier ideas are relegated to the margins of his genius. But you're saying that actually Kant's racism has greater significance than that, that it's shaped a lot of modern philosophical assumptions. I certainly agree that Kant has many deep insights that we can uh, extract from his racist ideas. So actually, when it comes to epistemology, I'm a Kantian myself. When it comes to issues of morality, I'm a fan of Aristotle and also of Confucius, even though both Aristotle and Confucius were very sexist and I consider myself a feminist. However, the fact is that these ideas have continued to have an influence in the West. So many people today assume without argument that there is no philosophy in China or Africa or India. And when I ask them, well, which philosophical thinkers in these traditions have you read that you didn't think were genuinely philosophical, you'd be amazed how often people say, oh, I've never read any Chinese philosophy. I've never read any Indian philosophy, but there isn't any right. So this is what I mean by saying that there's a structural racist problem that people exclude Chinese, Indian, African, and indigenous American philosophy from the curriculum without even bothering to look and ignoring people who studied these traditions and said that there is genuine philosophy in these traditions. Well, as you've mentioned, it's not the case that Western philosophy has always excluded non-Western traditions. They were once within the fold, but now they're gone. And I'm interested in the historical process of that exclusion. Do you see it as being in some way coincident with European projects of colonisation? It absolutely is. Uh, As Edward Said points out in his landmark work, Orientalism, there's long been a tendency of Westerners to lump together everything uh, in Asia, 
as if it were all the same and to use Asia as a foil to define the West by contrast. So the idea is that the West is rational and the so-called Orient is non-rational and the, the West is concerned with justice and the, the so-called Orient is concerned with personal relations uh, or power. So that's a, a trend that goes back a long way. However, when people, as I say, first encountered philosophy in Africa, uh, Asia, they were very impressed with it initially. It was only as Western imperialism grew that they talked themselves into the idea that there couldn't be philosophy outside of the West. And this is historically correlated with things like uh, Napoleon's invasion of Egypt, uh, the development of the East India Company, later the Opium Wars in China. People needed a rationalization for why they were entitled to subjugate other cultures, and the rationalization became that they these people weren't were not fully rational, they were not fully capable of governing themselves. And part of that was they weren't fully capable of doing philosophy. So colonialist influence at work in the history of philosophy. But what about the present? This is Serene Carter. She's the author of a recent book titled Decolonizing Universalism, a Transnational Feminist Ethic. And she sees that colonial history as something that's still being carried forward today in contemporary academic philosophy. I do agree that academic philosophy is a colonialist project from the ground up. I don't think it has to be, um, but I think we'd need really radical changes for it to not be one. So one clear way in which it's a colonialist project that I think it's hard for kind of anybody to dispute is there are like infinite questions that we could ask about the world, right? And we say like part of what's so great about philosophy is that you can ask about anything. But of course, we're not always going to be able to ask about everything. And what we have actually done in the institutions of academic philosophy is focused on the knowledge projects or the questions that this really small group of people prioritizes. Like, not just, I mean, we could say it prioritizes white Westerners, but actually, I mean, it's even smaller than that, right? It prioritizes elite white Western cisgender men. And it's not to say that they haven't asked some questions that everyone is interested in asking, but there are also infinite other knowledge projects we could be asking. Um, and it's hard to know, you know, how we would be able to do that without radically changing who does philosophy and also what traditions are like we take to be philosophy. Because there are really robust intellectual traditions outside of the Western tradition. But part of how you make a career in academic philosophy is by, you know, participating in conversations that have already been started and saying things that are very easily intelligible to the people who are already in those existing debates. My parents are immigrants from the global south, but I, you know, for most purposes, am a Western woman trained in the Western Academy. I find that when I give philosophy talks about this book, that there are very few people who are equipped to have the conversation with me at the level I want to have it because they're not immersed in the literature that I'm immersed in or they haven't paid attention to the problems in the world that I want to pay attention to. And I'm still using a broadly 
analytic Anglo-American philosophy tool set. If you're trying to use the tool set of Africana philosophy or more specifically any, you know, specific sub-philosophy, you're going to encounter a lot of people in the discipline and a disciplinary structure that doesn't have anyone, you know, doesn't have many people who can listen to you or ask you the kinds of questions that are going to put your project forward. Um, And that's really a problem, and it's why we need more diverse practitioners of philosophy, but we need to also, like, build up structures to have more diverse traditions, and we need to also kind of change this norm that if something isn't immediately clear to analytic philosophers, it must not be worth talking about. Serene Carter, and we're going to be hearing more from her in a couple of weeks' time on the program in a conversation about colonialism and feminist philosophy. This is The Philosopher's Zone on RN, and you're with me, David Rutledge. Okay, so let's say you're a colonial ruler from Europe. You've brought your European philosophical heritage with you to India or North Africa or the Congo or wherever it might happen to be, and you find that there are local traditions of philosophy that don't fit into Western epistemological categories. What are you going to do? Well, if you're anything like the actual European colonists of centuries past, you sideline these traditions of thought by simply not calling them philosophy. You call them something else. Here's Brian Van Norden. The classification of schools of thought as wisdom literature or philosophy or religion is not a purely neutral issue. It's a way of deciding whether or not we're going to take these ideas seriously. So in the beginning of the modern era, part of what people like Descartes were doing in the West was trying to draw a clear line between philosophy and religion. And then when people encountered philosophy in India and China, initially they classified it on the philosophy side of that divide. And in fact, uh, Christian Wolff, although he's not very well known today, was a major philosopher in the early Enlightenment in the West, and he caused quite a stir because he argued that we could learn from Confucius that it is possible to have a morality without belief in God. And so this was classifying then Chinese thinkers as on the secular side of the philosophy-religion divide. But then as people started to denigrate uh, Asian philosophy and African philosophy, they said, well, these things really aren't philosophy. They're local religions or they're wisdom literature. And you still get that uh, account today. Uh, Indian philosophy is often taught not in philosophy departments, but in departments of religious studies and People who are getting degrees in philosophy are often discouraged from taking courses in it on the grounds that, well, it's religion, it's not philosophy. I was talking a while back with a philosopher from Zimbabwe, originally from Zimbabwe, now in Australia, and he was talking about an interesting ambivalence that runs through African philosophy, where on one hand, there's this strong imperative to demonstrate that African philosophy exists, but on the other hand, There's an awareness that the categories of philosophy, including just the notion of what philosophy is, that these categories have been shaped by European tradition. 
to the extent that there's a sense in which academic philosophy is a colonialist enterprise from the ground up. And, and of course, the best career option for an African philosopher is still to get a job in a Western university. What are your thoughts on that? We have to be careful when we're comparing philosophy across traditions that we don't impose Western conceptions of what philosophy is in a way that distorts the original philosophical tradition. However, if we look in an open-minded way at what people are talking about in other traditions, the ways in which they're talking about it, we find a lot of interesting similarities. So, for example, if uh, you read the works of the Ethiopian uh, philosopher Zara Jacob, his writings are clearly talking about issues in uh, natural theology and uh, the nature of God that are perfectly intelligible as philosophical issues from the perspective of a Western audience. Likewise, Indian philosophers talk about issues in the philosophy of mind, metaphysics, epistemology that are obviously philosophical both in content and in form of argumentation from whether a Western or an Indian perspective. And in the Chinese tradition, there's an extremely rich discussion of issues in both metaphysics and also in issues about ethics and the nature of the virtues, which can easily be brought into uh, conversation with Western thinkers. This is one of the things I demonstrate in my recent book, Taking Back Philosophy, where I show that you can bring Confucian political thinkers into dialogue with Western thinkers like Thomas Hobbes. You can bring thinkers like Descartes into dialogue with Buddhist philosophers on the nature of the self. And there's really no difficulty in examining them as posing challenges to each other's positions, even though they historically didn't originally interact. But when you have cross-cultural dialogue happening in a contemporary setting, do you think it's the case that an academic philosopher from India or China or, or, or an African nation who wants to initiate this kind of dialogue with philosophy in the West, that that philosopher has to do more heavy intellectual lifting than their Western counterpart? And, and by that, I mean that the non-Western philosopher, just to get the dialogue started, has to take on a process of translation that renders his or her tradition intelligible in Western philosophical terms, whereas the Western philosopher doesn't have to do any of that. There's definitely a, a power imbalance in the world of academia, which reflects the power imbalance that has existed in economic and military uh, matters, and which uh, in many ways continues to exist. So some people talk about the double bind that non-Western philosophy is in. So on the one hand, uh, people who are doing non-Western philosophy have to show that their work is similar enough to Western philosophy that it counts as philosophy. However, at the same time, they have to show that it's different enough that it's actually worth learning about and it doesn't just recapitulate issues that are already in Western philosophy. And this is an issue that you don't have to face if you're teaching Hume or Kant uh, or Russell or, or any Western philosopher. You could spend your entire career interpreting part of Bertrand Russell's philosophy and nobody would think that you were wasting your time. Uh, but it's, it's ironic because 
Bertrand Russell, who was a brilliant philosopher, he's perhaps most famous nowadays for two things, writing a three-volume book in which he proved that one plus one equals two, and giving an analysis of the sentence, the present king of France was bald, in which he said that the sentence was false. And there's a heated debate between the Russellians and the Strassonians over whether or not this sentence is true, is false, or is neither true nor false. And if you spent your philosophical career working on that, no one in the West would think you were wasting your time. Meanwhile, in the Chinese tradition, people are debating what the nature of the self is, what reasons we have for compassion for other human beings, what virtues make you a good human being, uh, and they're debating these same issues that are vibrant and relevant to every human being's life in China, in India, in Africa, and somehow the people who are debating these very important questions to human life are then asked to justify the importance of what they're doing, whereas somebody arguing about whether the statement the present king of France is bald is false or neither true nor false, oh, that that is taken to be a perfectly sensible thing for an adult to be doing. So what do you think is the best way to address the problems that arise from this? Are you advocating simply getting more Indian and Chinese and other non-Western traditions into Western philosophy departments? Absolutely. And when I started out my career 30 years ago, I was a little naive because I thought that all I needed to do was show people how interesting Chinese philosophy, which is my area of specialization, how interesting Chinese philosophy is, and they'd be very receptive. And then I ran into this uh, brick wall of people just refusing to admit there even is philosophy outside the Anglo-European tradition, and I became very cynical about the possibilities for change. However, in the last few years, I've really started to see a significant change in people's attitudes, both undergraduates, graduate students, assistant professors, and even some uh, senior professors are increasingly open-minded about the possibilities of philosophy outside the West. They're increasingly excited about studying these traditions and learning about them. But in the long run, I think change will come about from the grassroots. So I would encourage students to ask their professors uh, to teach these topics, to ask why they haven't hired someone who teaches in one of these other philosophical traditions. And as there's more and more demand from students and as we get more and more uh, students who are becoming themselves professors, we're going to see increasing changes in the field. So I'm, I'm optimistic about the future. Well, there are still challenges, though, to those changes, aren't there? And one of those challenges often comes in the form of the argument that introducing Chinese or Indian or African philosophical traditions into university curricula will mean that others from the Western canon inevitably get bumped, right? And, and then it's a question of, well, who are you going to get rid of? And the answer is nobody because they're all too important. What do you make of that argument? I've heard that argument, and the fact is that no philosophy department is comprehensive in its coverage. You can't cover every figure and every trend, even in just the, the Western philosophical tradition. And the canon of philosophers whom we study has never been fixed. There was a time when if you studied philosophy, you absolutely had to read Cicero. Now, almost no one reads Cicero, and frankly, I don't think we lost anything by dropping Cicero out of the philosophical curriculum. Uh, 
I also like to tell a story about how they had a controversy at the, the University of Paris uh, a few years back when this renegade young upstart uh, philosopher tried to get a new thinker incorporated into the philosophical curriculum. And people said, oh, this new thinker you want to bring into the curriculum, he's not part of our tradition. And uh, he, you're watering down the curriculum by bringing in this, this thinker from outside our tradition. And the, the young upstart philosopher who was doing this was Thomas Aquinas, uh, and this was in the, the 13th century, and he was arguing for the inclusion of Aristotle in the philosophical curriculum at the University of Paris. And people tried to reject Aristotle on the same grounds they now try to reject Confucius or the Bhagavad Gita. They said it's not part of our tradition. They said, well, who would you have us drop from the canon? Uh, but Aquinas won, and the European philosophical tradition was much richer because of it. Uh, so the canon of philosophical thinkers has never been fixed. It's always been subject to dispute. Thinkers come into the canon, they go out of the canon. And so this is not an unheralded change, or it's not a change the likes of which we've never seen before. Well, there's a lot of talk in Australia at the moment about defending and preserving our Western heritage and that, that Western civilization is in some sense under threat and that it needs to be defended from the incursions of trendy multiculturalism, among other things. And this is spilling over into the tertiary education sector where there's been a lot of controversy around the idea of universities setting up a course in Western civilization studies, which... Some of its supporters are quite unabashed in saying that this is a course designed not just to study Western civilization, but to actively promote it. I wonder what you think about that and about the politics behind it. Well, again, we have to look at history. The very notion of Western civilization is actually a very recent one. This concept developed in the 20th century, and it was part of a propaganda move to help motivate people, for example, in the Cold War. The idea was that we're defending Western civilization against godless communism. And so it's not as if Western civilization is a concept that everybody has always had or that there even is a thing called Western civilization that's had a unique identity going all the way back to the Greece. As I say, the notion that philosophy begins in Greece is a very recent one. Until the time of Kant, the two most common views were that philosophy began in Africa, and from Africa, philosophy came to Greece, or that philosophy began in India, and from India, philosophy was brought to Greece. So the notion that philosophy starts in Greece or that there is a unique thing that's hermetically sealed off from every other tradition called the Western tradition, that's actually a very recent idea, and it's just not historically defensible. We know that cultures have influenced each other from a very early age, and uh, this, this notion that Western civilization is a unique thing that has to be defended from outsiders is intrinsically xenophobic, and it's uh, a tool of a kind of uh, dangerous nationalism that I think we should fight against. Brian Van Norden, Professor of Philosophy at Yale NUS College in Singapore, and bringing us to the end of The Philosopher's Zone for this week. 
But as I mentioned, this has been the first program in a five-part series on philosophy in the wake of empire. Join me next week for part two and a look at the ways in which the movement of refugees from former European colonies is challenging Western Europe's idea of itself, as well as reshaping some deeply rooted philosophical notions about the ethical encounter with the other. That's The Philosopher's Zone next week, and of course you can listen again anytime via the ABC Listen app. I'm David Rutledge. Tweet me at David P. Zone. Thanks for your company this week, and I'll see you next time. Bye for now. Thank you.